I mean, I think the story has resonances for today, one of which is about the fact that we think a lot more about issues of, of gender fluidity today. The other being, of course, that this Shura and all of the Russians were part of an enormous refugee crisis of that time, probably on a par with the Armenian refugee crisis. And, you know, we live in a time of refugee crisis here. Today on The Point, writer and historian Paul French. We had a long conversation about his new book, Destination Peking, and his new BBC Radio 3 docudrama, Peking Noir. Rather than publish the entire interview today, I'll publish the second half of the interview about Paul's book, Destination Peking, next Monday. But first, we talk about his new BBC Radio 3 docudrama, Peking Noir. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for the ultimate transformation. Shura, the penniless refugee from Tomsk. Shura, the girl who sold dances to the highest bidder in Kharbin. Shura, the man who runs the most fantastic chorus lines Peking has ever seen. The woman who is a caring mother to our darling Marie. Shura, with the voice of an angel and the determination... Peking Noir is a new six-part docudrama from BBC Radio 3 that dramatizes the life of Shura Giraldi, who fled the Bolshevik Revolution and became a major figure in Peking's underworld. Paul French is the presenter of Peking Noir. He is a historian and a writer who has written extensively about China in the first half of the 20th century. He's here to speak to me about Peking Noir and his new book, Destination Peking. He joins me from the south of England. Paul, thank you for joining me on The Point. I really enjoyed both Peking Noir and Destination Peking. You've been on Shura's tale for 15 years. When did you first encounter Shura, and what was it that interested you about Shura? Well, I, uh, around about, well, thank you very much for inviting me on your show, by the way. Um, but. And it, this is good as you're in Beijing, as I know this is a bit of an old Peking overload. But um, the, the two things were done at separate times, but because of lockdown and everything, I've sort of come out at the same time. So it just looks like I, I'm, I'm kind of crazy on old Peking, but which is true. But um, I wasn't um, planning them both to come out at the same time. Anyway, that happened. And it's good because um, really it all starts with my book midnight in peking which was a long research process that was eventually published in 2012 and i'm happy to say it did rather well um and uh, was quite widely read all around the world and um i kind of got very good feedback on it that's the story of a of a murder in in Peking in 1937 of a young English girl that was never solved at the time um, and I went back and reinvestigated the case and one of the people who popped out as a small witness was uh, Shura Giraldi who was also perhaps known as Shura uh, uh, Sosnitsky who was clearly a uh, what we used to call a white Russian a Russian emigre from the Bolshevik revolution who was um, living in Peking. And Shura was a fascinating character, um, largely because there was a wanted notice for him from the French concession police in Shanghai. 
that indicated that um, he sometimes appeared as a as a male and sometimes as a female, and no one was quite sure which he actually was in the parlance of the day, there being only two genders. Um, this got very confusing. Um, there are also lots and lots of rumours about him, everything from he's just a fabulist who makes up stories and is really just nobody, to um, he's a major bank robber, drug dealer, owns every bar and cafe in the foreign red light area of uh, Peking at the time, which was called the Badlands, over by what is now Beijing Railway Station. And um, no, no two people seem to be able to agree on this character. Anyway, he was a, a rather minor character in um, Midnight in Peking. And although I had lots more information on him, there were lots of uh, memoirs that mentioned him as being uh, what at the time they referred to as a hermaphrodite or what we would now probably call intersex, um, that he uh, uh, appeared as a man, presented as a man and presented as a female sometimes, and all of these rumours about him, all fascinating, none of which could really go in the book apart from a few hints because it would have taken me off the main uh, story. But I kept it all and I kept on talking about him. And then when the book came out and I was travelling around and and talking about it and also receiving feedback from it, Shura seemed to be someone that everyone wanted to talk about. I mean, he, the people were fascinated by the mercurial kind of zelig-like nature of this character. As so I kept on digging and also started to receive more information about him from, from all over the world, from former Russians uh, that had lived in Beijing. Again, some saying, ah, he was the biggest villain you ever met. And others saying he was just nobody. He was just a cashier who liked to talk himself up. So I kind of stayed on his trail and my producer at BBC Radio, Sasha Yevtushenko, who has a Russian connection and was very interested in this, um, had argued for a long time uh, that we should do a radio drama about it. And we couldn't because the rights to the book were tied up with various people, still are tied up with various people. But eventually we got permission to do this. The BBC, I'm glad to say, jumped on it, it and, and it kind of spiraled from there. And uh, I think we were originally given an hour and then uh, we were given an hour and a half. And when we submitted the final script, which was two hours, they said, OK, let's do it as two hours on Radio 3. And then we'll put it out as a six part podcast on BBC Sounds and Spotify and iTunes and everywhere else. So kudos to the BBC that they kind of saw this project grow and grow and grow. And, and even by BBC standards, which are, you know, lots of radio drama and, and lots of airtime um, to be given two hours is kind of fantastic. You wrote that docudrama works best, uh, where we simply can't ever know all the facts, where there is always an element of informed guesswork that can help bring the story to life and convey real experiences. Why do you think this story works so well as a as a um, as a docudrama? Well, I kind of stumbled into docudrama. Um, I've done quite a fair bit of audio work with the BBC and with RTHK in Hong Kong, and also with um, Audible, um, who asked me to do some some projects on on China last year or year before last now. Um, and um, I kind of liked the format. And we did a project based on um, on uh, the assassination of Kim Jong-nam in North Korea, which was a kind of ripped from the headlines type thing. And we wanted to concentrate on the relationship between uh, Kim Jong-nam and his half-brother Kim Jong-il and how things went so allegedly disastrously wrong. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you take as much information as you can, take everything that we know, get some talking heads who know what they're talking about to, to brief you on what they know, and then take that next leap, which is to try and imagine the conversations which were had, which we will never know. 
So, uh, and, and with North Korea, there isn't going to be like in 20 years time, a sudden release of papers or, or Freedom of Information Act in Pyongyang or anything. We're just never going to know the answer. Now, the work I do in, in books is, is what I would call literary nonfiction. So I, I take a nonfiction story and use a lot of the techniques of literary fiction to tell that story in the hope that it grips the reader. And what I learned from that was that as long as you're honest with the reader and you say, look, this is what we know, this is what we don't know, and this is what I'm going to make my best guesstimate, and you're going to have to trust me that I've, I've researched it as much as possible and, and I'm making a sensible guess here. Applying that to radio, we, we did the same thing with Peking Noir, which is know everything that you can and then try and fill in the gaps with, you know, the best guesstimate dramatised. What do you want? This is the balalaika. Yeah. My friend, she said she'd be here. Her name is Nastia. We have no one by that name here. But I need a job. Please, I'll do anything. I need your help. I have nothing and I need to eat. What can you do? I can dance. There is a lot that we still don't know about about Shura, but you've unearthed quite a lot of information about about him. Where did you get most of your, what did you find rather most of your information about, about the story? Well, actually, uh, before I encountered Shura as a um, witness in the, uh, in, in the Pamela Werner murder case, which is Midnight in Peking, I had come across him before, but I didn't register the two until later in the memoirs of um, John Blofeld. John Blofeld was a fascinating English aesthete who lived in uh, Peking in the 1930s, went on to go and live in, in Thailand after uh, the Second World War. Um, and he wrote a wonderful book called The City of Lingering Splendor. And any of your listeners or yourself who are interested in, in Beijing and a sense of what Beijing was like before the Second World War, really, you, this is one of the books that's sort of, you know, on the top five reads, I think. And Blofeld mostly talks about the, the sensuousness and the, the traditions of Peking at that time. He talks about opera and temples and hutongs and, and all of that great stuff. But he goes off on a slight diversion about a an odd Russian he met who offered to sell him some sort of bootleg Crimean wine that he wanted for a party. And um, he then tells the story of Shura through several, several different uh, uh, angles um, and, and sources that he has. Uh, and mention references this what well, at the time they would use the term hermaphrodite now that that kind of is interesting and also we know a lot more about that particular uh, condition nowadays and we're a lot more understanding about it and it comes within the sort of general better understanding of, of gender fluidity and so on um, but it did fascinate people um, and, and it did interest me as well that there was this character that was living who was in the 1930s, who was quite open about their um, sex and sexuality, who quite openly um, lived uh, uh, with male lovers, who uh, did certainly run big nightclubs and uh, organized dancing chorus lines, and had this incredible life, uh, disappeared during World War II, who knows where, we speculate in um, Peking Noir, uh, and then came back because of his background and the allegations about him was unable to secure a passport for another country and was eventually uh, what they called a forced repatriation to the Soviet Union, a country Shura had left in 1919, fleeing uh, the Bolsheviks after the murder of his parents. So 
um, it, it's an incredible story uh, that takes in kind of, you know, I think we say at the start, two revolutions, a world war, the warlord era. I mean, at that time, over the time of Shura's life, uh, Beijing had nine different rulers going from, you know, kind of um, uh, the early Republican government through warlords to uh, Chiang Kai-shek to, to Mao. Um, he, he, saw, he saw it all. So as well as being a fascinating individual story, he is a cipher for, um, you know, uh, Beijing between the war. You know, I, I have to admit, I, I was largely ignorant about the history between China and Russia. Um, I've been to Harbin in northeastern China, not far from the Russian border. I've stood in front of the Russian Orthodox Cathedral there. But still, um, as you say, it's, this is not really a history that's taught in schools. Um, when I think of Russian exiles after the Bolshevik Revolution, um, I, I never considered that many of these exiles came to China. Uh, why did some Russians choose to come to China? And, and how many of them came Oh well, it's it's quite simple. It just it just depends where you were when the Bolshevik Revolution happened, um, and if you were in the sort of uh, west west of Russia, then probably Europe was the easiest place to go. Hence, the very large populations of um, Russian emigres that appeared in uh, Berlin and particularly Paris, but also London and every other European city. Others, of course, continued on to the United States. So we see a white Russian community there. Uh, they pop up everywhere. Um, Shura himself was from Tomsk in Siberia. And most people who were sort of, if you like, east of Novosibirsk probably followed the Trans-Siberian Railway east or walked east, ended up uh, either taking that Trans-Siberian spur down into Mongolia. So we see whole white armies, as they were called, moving into Mongolia. Um, Many others got on boats at Vladivostok, sailed down the coast to what is now the ports of North Korea, like Rajin, and then got the Russian-controlled trains that went across um, Manchuria, uh, now Heilongjiang, um, of which, of course, Harbin, as you mentioned, is at the top, but the, the other cities there. So, so they appear there. And of course, before the revolution, because of the railway, the China Eastern Railway, which was run and managed by the Russians on a concession, um, there had always been a sizable population of Russians in Harbin, very cosmopolitan cities, you know, considering it seems quite remote to a lot of us. Um, and so that border area had always been an area with lots of Russians. So it was a natural place to go. From there, they filtered out. We see them go to Tokyo. We see them go as far as Manila, Hong Kong. And of course, within China, we're looking at a couple of hundred thousand wow. coming into China, probably. Uh, the, major- the majority initially settling in Harbin and that community remaining. If you've been to Harbin, you've also seen the, the classic onion-domed Russian Orthodox churches that were built there. A lot went, of course, to Tianjin, uh, down to Shanghai. We're looking at about 25,000, 30,000 Russian refugees living in, in Shanghai throughout the 1920s and 30s. And of course, as you know, what three Russian churches down in, in Shanghai as well, orphanages, schools, the entire ecostructure of, of a community. Uh, and a few, Beijing was not a big community, but a few went to to Beijing as well. So so that you find them everywhere, all across uh, Russia, all across China. Sorry. So what was life like for these exiles in the late 1910s until the arrival of the Japanese in the 30s? Well, it was very hard. Uh, I mean, most of them had had to leave with with very little money. Um, and most of them, of course, were from um, 
uh, well, they either tended to be, I mean, I know there's this kind of general belief that all of them were counts and princes and archdukes and so on. And of course, many, I mean, it was the time of great fake princes and fake dukes. Everyone was an aristocrat. Lots of them weren't. They were more sort of petty bourgeois or people that had worked with the middle classes and the bourgeoisie um, who, who couldn't remain under the Bolsheviks. Uh, one of the problems there was that uh, many of them didn't have many skills you know many of the women particularly hadn't really been trained for anything except to make a good marriage so they had skills in dancing manners uh, usually quite good french you know but not much else often there's a lower if you like class of, of russians that come who were often the people that accompanied them servants and so on who were seamstresses seamstresses grooms cooks things like that and they they could sort of find work set up restaurants take on jobs there was a lot of ex-soldiers, many of whom became uh, bodyguards for the various warlords of, of northern China. The warlords of northern China liked big, strong, strapping Russian, you know, Cossacks, officers as, as their bodyguards. One, because uh, they were pretty impressive and knew what they were doing. Um, and two, uh, they didn't have divided loyalties based on clans and villages and provinces and, and things like that. They tended to be loyal to who was paying them, which, of course, is rather good if you want to live a long time as a warlord so um they did they did find jobs and of course there was this criminality element that, that came as well or others that fell into criminality or that kind of gray area between the legal and the illegal which is of course the world of of nightclubs and uh, you know the associations of drugs prostitution and, and everything else that goes on around that Saxon. This place can be his. That bastard's never setting foot in here. This is my club. I have spent years building it up. I hear you're a girl under that shirt, Geraldi. Why don't you let me see? Why, you filthy bastard, get off him! Uh Sarah Woolley, who wrote the dramatic parts of the docudrama, said that she basically wrote the thing as as an action film. And and you wrote that, you know, I'm aware that at times I might have had to say, sorry, I don't think we can do that when we strayed from the historically justifiable, uh, but it wasn't often. And I was just wondering, what were some of the ideas that you felt you just couldn't do? <laughs> well, um, I mean, I, I was aware of Sarah as a, as a as she is a prolific writer for, for theatre and particularly for radio in the UK. And she always works, usually works with um real characters she's done fantastic radio dramas on andy warhol um the incidents with ted kennedy at chappaquiddick she's done a great thing about the history of the national theater which involved bringing to life Laurence olivier and, and, and all of these characters so she, i knew she was very good at that she i think it's fair to say really knew nothing about china and certainly nothing about uh, republican era chinese history and that kind of is fine we could sit down and talk um, and, and, and work through this. And I would kind of lay out exactly the series of events that I wanted to go to and what we knew and what we didn't know. So um, I would say, look, here at some point, we know that this event happens, right? A nightclub is opened and Shura is the owner. We need to have that moment to show that he's stepping up. Or here is a moment where Shura, because of problems with the Japanese and lack of money and Marie's drug addiction, needs to make money in some way to get to change their life and we need a way for them to make money and here are the rumors sort of pick one and and see what you want to do with it sarah would then go away and write um drama 
and and bring it back to me work on those scenes together and i would write the narration that goes around it which hopefully then allows you to refine the drama because the narration allows me to get in the history and the scene setting so that you understand what's going on in the scene if you know what i mean um even if you don't have a sort of master's degree in chinese history so and chinese history is of course you know very very complicated so so the narration in itself is a sort of a challenge um i think that most of the time uh, sarah was great fun but she did see that we were doing something epic and radio 3 was very keen for us to do something as much as you can on radio epic which is lovely because i i write uh, you know I, I work on film and tv scripts sometimes and of course you're always aware when you say uh, we're going to do a um, for instance in in peking noir there is a, a train robbery now we know that uh, Shura had a warlord lover and we know that, that warlord lover bought Shura a large uh, uh, nightclub in in Peking and just gifted it to Shura um, and we also know that but we don't know exactly where his money came from except that at that time uh, warlords were robbing trains particularly the Tianjin to, to Beijing train it was getting robbed all the time everyone's seen Marlena Dietrich and Anna Mae Wong in Shanghai Express you know this, this is the situation in warlord China so, so Sarah, of course, just has the idea that she can do a train robbery. And, and I've got a few things that must happen in this train robbery in order to advance the story. And, if it, and then I, I basically just dumped research on her. So I sent her a lot of the work I'd done before in other books about train robberies. I sent her newspaper reports from the time. Um, I, you know, and she goes away and writes the scene. Now, I'm trying to think of an example of what I might have rejected. But I think it wasn't really a, a notion of rejecting an idea as such because we'd normally worked it out. It was just a question of um, someone couldn't do this because this just isn't how a warlord would have acted at that time. So, so, so we worked within the historical possible. So I don't know that um, Shura's warlord lover robbed a train to, to pay for the nightclub he bought her. I do know he bought her a nightclub. I do know warlords rob chains. I do know this that this was a warlord. Um, we're, we're putting that together and then basically taking an amalgam of all of the train robberies of that time. Similarly with um, how do you get into the um, heroin business in 1930s Peking, which was massive. And everyone always thinks of opium. But of course, a lot of the foreigners wanted the more fashionable drug, which was heroin. And if you were really fashionable and had a lot of money, then then you wanted cocaine. People never really think of heroin and cocaine in China because of the prevalence of opium, but it certainly was there. And um, how did that happen? How did how did money, uh, drugs, um, stolen goods move between Shanghai and Beijing? Why did people in Beijing use Shanghai to sell, buy drugs, and so on? You know, this kind of stuff is all sort of historical research and quite fun. Um, and then Sarah writes around it. And as I say, in in radio, you can write, you know, an entire city block blows up. And uh, no one says we can't afford to do that because it's all just sound. It's just sound effects. So you can literally do what you like with radio. You know, you can have a train robbery in a radio. Whereas if we were doing it for TV, they probably said, mm, couldn't you have them held up in a taxi? That'd be like a third of the cost. But, you know, in radio, you can just do what you want. Your, your imagination can just run riot. So Sarah wrote that you shared with her texts and pictures and, and a Spotify playlist as well in the hope that it would inspire her. What was on the Spotify playlist? 
Oh, well, I mean, the idea of the Spotify playlist originally was to try and work out what people would listen to at the time. And of course, a lot of the work I do in my books is to try and work out what people are listening to, what, what, how people are talking, um, uh, what, and what smells there are. And I feel that so much writing about China is not that evocative often because people haven't really done that research. They just have people walking in rooms and walking out of rooms and they, they call them a cafe or, you know, they throw a bit of art deco in if it's Shanghai, everyone wanders through a hutong if it's Beijing. But I always try to think about, to take it to the next level and think, what is that? What, what were the smells in that hutong? You know, what was the sounds you were hearing in that hutong? Um, and, and, you know, to try and convey that, that atmosphere. All of this, Peking Noir or, or books like Midnight in Peking or, or City of Devils that I wrote about Shanghai, are all really exercises in time travel, as far as I'm concerned. They're about taking you away to another place. And um, here we could kind of work things out. So we've got the music that was being listened to in China at that time, the Chinese music, the traditional music, as well as the new kind of modern music that's particularly coming from Shanghai. And we've also got what the Russians are listening to, which is often quite mournful music of a lost homeland and the great Russian soul in exile, but is also cabaret music that they're listening to in, in what we were called at the time, you know, Rusky cabarets where, where people listen to things like that. So we started building up those different uh, tunes. So you'll hear all sorts of things in there from uh, a great classical piece called the Hills of Manchuria, which was a song that every Russian who, who has any contact with China would know because it's from the uh, 1905 Russo-Japanese war. It was the kind of anthem of that, that war um, through to kind of Shanghai jazz um, and just, you know, music that was coming in from Hollywood. I mean, people in Peking in the 1930s were going to see, you know, Busby Berkeley movies and uh, Ziegfeld Follies movies. And so of course that was transferring itself onto the, the cabaret stage as well. When you were casting the role of Shura, you made it a point, or the, the production made it a point, to cast an intersex actor. What were you looking for in your Shura? Um, I think that, uh, uh, well, to be technical, we, we, we cast a non-binary actor. Um, and we took, uh, once we started moving into the world of Shura, we realized that um, we, we were dealing with someone who in the, in the texts of the time, the contemporary texts of the 1930s and written later was referred to as an hermaphrodite, a, a, a term that people understand to an extent, but isn't really used now. And we did um, speak to lots of, we realized this could be a potential minefield, but a very interesting one to get into. So we didn't want to avoid it because it's key to, to Shura's character. But I did go and speak with uh, me and myself, Sarah and Sasha, the, the producer did speak with, various academics and, and, and organizations uh, to try and get this absolutely right. Um, and then there's the issue of when you're casting on radio for any kind of drama, how do you do it? Now, of course, we have massive debates around how you cast for television and film. No one nowadays would accept, you know, the old yellow face or, or blackface acting. Um, that just wouldn't really happen these days, obviously. Um, but when you come to radio, of course, there is an argument that says that, well, as no one can see anyone, you know, anyone can be anyone on radio. And, and that's what actors are supposed to do. Well, yes, to a point. But uh, we also do try and cast uh, along lines that allow the, the actors to, to represent characters from, from their own heritage and backgrounds. So many of the cast, and in fact, all the cast playing Chinese uh, characters uh, are from British East Asian backgrounds that they're, they're actors who many of whom I've worked with before on other on other projects 
about China and Korea or Japan who 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 sometimes have language skills as well which is which is really useful particularly where because I do a lot of mashing up of language nowadays we have foreigners who speak their their language and a few words of chinese depend from from sort of almost zero to very good but if you go back to the time i write about most people would have spoken many other languages and you would have heard all sorts of languages if you'd have walked the streets of shanghai or various parts of peking in the 1930s you would definitely have heard russian you would definitely have heard yiddish you would probably have heard you know if you were walking through honko in shanghai in the 1930s you would probably have heard german uh, and and many other different languages being spoken and and all of those mashing up with people borrowing words from all over the place um so that interests me as well so so it's nice to have actors who have good language skills and then i think um because part of the character is about this sexual fluidity we we did look at a number of and and also we needed to not give that away so much i mean it's something that's known but when the transitions occur we want it to sort of work so i want we wanted an actor who could who could portray not just um someone who is presenting as male and someone who is presenting as female sometimes among friends but sometimes in order to to obfuscate and to confuse police or whoever but we also have to have someone who can play sure from you know a teenager through to mid 50s so a lot of range both in terms of gender fluidity and age um and maggie bain that that we found is uh, uh, is a non-binary uh, actor who has worked done amazing work on on stage has done a lot of radio work and voiceover work and so just was fantastic everybody down everybody down on the floor say the truth say the truth i said down hey you tell her give me the key and again in the way that i shared so much documentation and original sources with uh, Sarah when we were writing I was able to then take all of that to to Maggie Maggie's an actor who really really likes to immerse herself in the role and absorb all of the research and and take it all on board she doesn't just walk in pick up the script and start reading she she really wants to soak it all up and uh, for her and and for us and for the academics that we spoke to i mean i w- if i'd have had another half hour i would have put in a lot more talking heads but we just didn't have the room um, you know the Shura case is also an academic study that's of interest to people that are looking for cases you know people who are researching gender and gender fluidity and many of the things that we talk about very open now around transgender and so on to, to find cases that have some documentation attached to them from back in the 1930s is very rare and very useful so so Shura is sort of useful to the academics as well as well as being perhaps I mean I think the story has resonances for today one of which is about the fact that we think a lot more about issues of of gender fluidity today the other being of course that this shura and all of the russians were part of an enormous um wave of of refu- a refugee crisis of that time probably you know on a par with uh the armenian refugee crisis and you know we live in a time of refugee crisis here um you know i'm sitting here in the south of england on the coast and um you know we have spent the whole of last year and still even in this freezing cold weather have flimsy rubber dinghies with uh refugees largely from syria and other places crossing from france in, in taking incredible risks to try and get here to england uh, to to 
to, to become refugees here in England and start new lives. And, uh, it, you know, sometimes we don't, I think the Russian, the great Russian exodus, uh, as well as the, the Armenians, who is another one that, that isn't talked about so much today. These are mass exoduses that aren't really spoken about today. And so I think that also puts it in a historical context. So again, the Shura story in its widest context has these issues that are very much with us today, um, but places them back in hutongs of 1930s Beijing. Thanks very much to Paul French. The docudrama is Peking Noir. You can listen to it on BBC Sounds or in podcast form on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Look for part two of our conversation on Monday. We'll hear my interview with filmmaker Xiao Pei He, which I'd originally scheduled for this week, next Thursday. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next week.